Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. We're coming together to study, to learn, to learn the deeper meaning of life, the deeper meaning of, of our spirituality, and um, it's lacking. It's lacking all over the world, and I'm so happy that he's able to broadcast it all over the world because the world needs to have Torah people study the depth of our tradition. So a big yeshikorach for you, Rabbi Shmuley, really. Big yeshikorach. You have a brilliant staff. We're equally deep friends, and, and just having had this, the privilege to spend a cruise with you should have opened us up in a deeper way. And, and my God, Reb Saraleya, we go back to the pr- good old prison days. Um, we got to free the world from the prison we're in. And um, let's maybe start by freeing our souls a little bit. I, I tried acting intellectual this morning, so, but I can't, I can't hold out that long. So let's start with a nigun, okay? <laughs> Because of my brothers and friends, because of my sisters and friends, please let me ask, please let me sing peace to you. Hey, this is the house, the house of the Lord. I wish the best for you and me. So this was a little bit of a prayer, really, to be able to get through a very difficult subject, a very delicate subject, a very painful subject, a very promising subject, a very hopeful subject. And um, I always say on these issues that I'm an equal opportunity offender. I offend the right and the left. So um, no one can get too angry at me because (laughs) they'll find the other sides are also angry. But um, seriously speaking, you know, we're having these challenges in Israel today, and it's just mind-boggling. I mean, we think of the Vietnam War. I mean, I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, we thought it would never end, you know? It ended. We think of um, the Iron Curtain. The best hope we had was what? That maybe one day we'll nuke them, and a few will survive. Nobody in their wildest dreams ever thought 
that the mighty autocratic Soviet empire would come tumbling down through people power. So we've seen in our miracles in our own, thank you so much, God bless you. We've seen miracles in our own lifetime of people power really creating a transcendent consciousness. And I think Israel is that challenge to us. Israel has been there as a challenge going back to the days of the Vietnam War, the Iron Curtain. And I think part of the reason it doesn't go away so easily is because when God blesses Israel to figure out the formula of how to deal with the various tensions within and the various tensions that surround it, that's going to be Mashiach. That's going to fix the world. So when you know, people talk tikkun ha'olam, I'm, I'm all for it, but um, it's much deeper than just the commercial sound of it. That's the real tikkun, is to learn how to coexist, not lose your dignity, your distinctiveness, and not, not let the other do that neither, but somehow not being afraid to speak the truth. And it seems like it's impossible, but so did the future of the um, Eastern Bloc countries and the Soviet Union seem like they'd never be liberated from that Iron Curtain and so forth. So I just want to start by saying we've seen the miracles already. These are miracles. If we just look back in history, to think that the mighty Soviet autocratic power could be overthrown and there wouldn't be one, am I correct in history? I would make it up. But not one shot was fired, am I right? Maybe a little bit, um, the, a few of the generals took over, tried doing something. But basically, it was a people power revolution that just shocked the world. It was a Mashiach moment. You know? The world didn't know what to do with it, but it was a transcendent moment. So I think those moments happen in history. But I really want to look at um, contemporary Israel a little bit, both internally and its external challenges, by going back to our ancient, to antiquity really, and to really see how that can inform upon our present situation. Actually, we learned this a little bit earlier in the morning in great depth, but uh, I'll start from the same place I started this morning. The first spiritual journey that a human being takes in our recorded tradition is Abraham going to the land of Israel. And that's the, your first um, uh, uh, teaching there, Parshat Lech Lecha, where God says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, if you're going to Israel, you're not just touring, you're not just there as a tourist. You're going deep into yourself. Your soul's got to be touched when you're traveling to Israel. It's not just another journey. It's going to be filled with tension. You're going to have all extremes come together. You know, I'm interrupting myself with another teaching, but I'll come back to this Lech Lecha in a second. One of the greatest Hasidic rabbis right period leading up to the Holocaust was Rabbi Yechiel Meir of Ostrovtza, my God. We got Rav Saraleya here, whose family is descended, and she told me a beautiful Ustrefza story today. Uh, um, so this master, as Saraleya said earlier, fasted for 40 years because he saw a darkness is coming upon the world. And um, he foresaw the Holocaust, similar to a story in the Talmud. But anyway, he said something so profound about Israel. And it's going to actually, we're going to touch on it in our second teaching, but it's relevant in this moment, so I'll share it now. He said that um, it says about Israel that it's, he said there are two types of people that go to Israel. Those who make aliyah, which literally in you know, a deeper sense means to, 
to elevate yourself, to go up to the mountain, to go up and to, to make yourself a higher soul, higher, more enlightened soul. And he says the other kind of people that are around are people that are Yardim. <laughs> and they um, just, you know, uh, um, always descend, God forbid. He said most of us are not on a level of permanently making Aliyah. We're not elevating our souls at most times. And neither are we God willing, you know, thank God, the Yardim people. We don't constantly do decadent descendant things. Most of us are just what he called Yoshvim. We're sitting around <laughs> and letting life pass us by. And we make a little good deed here, a little good deed there, but we're occupied with just watching and observing and sitting. But he says, the Torah says about Israel in, in the second portion we're going to look at in a minute, it's Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha. It's the land that consumes those who just sit around. In Israel, no one comes to just sit in a lot by the beach and take it easy. And people do, I guess. But in Israel, you, you're always, you're pulled right and left, you're pulled higher, you're pulled low, you're pulled in all directions. So our story here of Abraham having this spiritual journey to the land of Israel is going deep, deep into his own neshama. It's lech lecha, that you're walking to Israel is not, is not what it took God is telling him. He says, lech lecha, walk deep into yourself. Go out of all your outer surface as we developed it earlier beautifully with the uh, Ishbitzer Rebbe, your outer surface uh, uh, points of reference, and move deep, deep into yourself. You're not just touring the country. And what's defined as our mission in Israel? You'll see in, let's see, the fourth line down, starting at the end of the third line. And you shall be a blessing. V'hayei bracha. Our purpose in Israel is to be a blessing. Let's never forget this quintessential source teaching of what we are supposed to do in Israel. We're supposed to be there to create a consciousness of blessing. And the Torah defines it in the next line. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. We're in Israel for, so people can look at us and say, wow, what a holy people, what an inspiration. That's why Abraham came to the land of Israel. And it's so beautiful, a line back. God says, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. But it's so beautiful. That's the English translation. It doesn't quite fit too well with the Hebrew translation. For those of you who are familiar with it, it doesn't say, or roar, I will curse back. But it says, or. Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, this is the teaching from the Vilna Gaon, would always say, or means light. Those who curse you, I will enlighten. There are two levels. On one level, you need to fight back. And on one level, you're on the surface. And if you talk bad to me, I'm naturally inclined to talk back to you. But on a deeper level, if you talk back to me, can I talk such good language to you? that you, you will hear the outpouring of my soul and you will feel some higher light in this conversation? That my words will serve as a light to you? So it doesn't say aror, it says aor. So our mission in Israel is nothing less than being transcendent. It's not for labor and, um, and what's Netanyahu's party called again? Shows you how in touch I am. And Likud to play politics. And, and they're just, they're you and I, they're not bad people. We all make those things. But Israel is not just another example of coming to the political table and doing some horse trading and trying to work through issues. Israel 
in its highest original spiritual source to us is nothing less than to raise our consciousness in a way that begins what people call a tikkun ha'olam, a real repair. And that's the source definition of why we're in Israel. Abraham is the first, later becoming a Jew, coming to Israel on that spiritual journey, and God defines very clearly the perimeters of what he's supposed to do there. And, you know, it's so beautiful because um, there is a powerful story, a midrash, which is not recorded in any midrash. It's part of the ancient oral tradition. But it's beautiful because we have this tradition, and so does Islam. Rabbi Saraleh took me many years ago to an interfaith session here, and um, I heard an Islamic teacher share this story. I humbly went over to her and just told her we share this story too, a little bit differently. Um, but it's a story that's reminding us why we are in Israel and what that means to have that higher consciousness. The story is told that um, the mountaintop in Jerusalem used to be a farm. And two brothers owned it. One brother had ten children, one brother was childless. One night, the brother with ten children is lying in bed and thinking to himself, God has blessed me. I have, you know the story, I have ten kids. I'm so blessed. My poor brother, Nebuch, doesn't have anything. All he has is this farm. This is everything for him. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I know if I give him something, he won't take it from me. So I'm going to get out of bed now, late at night, and we're harvesting right now. I'm going to just take some of the goods and throw it over the other side of the fence. And at the same time, by the will of God, the other brother, an hour later, has the same thought. He says, my poor brother's got ten children. I'm like a hog. What do I need all this for? He's got to divide it among his family. It's, I don't need that much crops. I don't need that much money. So an hour later, he takes the crops on his side and he throws them over to the other side. In the morning, they both wake up in the biggest miracle. By giving, they didn't lose anything. So if it worked for one day, try it again the second day. I heard this story many times, but Rip Shlomo told it so beautifully. He says, one late at night, maybe it was in Yom Kippur. One brother was a little bit early, and one brother was a little bit late, and they met. And at that moment, when these two brothers figured out what was going on in here, there was a voice in heaven, it's quoted in the Psalms now, where God says, Zot minachati adei ad, this will be my resting place for all eternity. Po eshev, here I will sit, ki evi tua, because I am wanted here, I am needed here. So that's the consciousness of the holy temple, before there was a holy temple. And it's so fascinating that we have this tradition. Some people say it's only theirs, some people say it's, I'm not going to get into that debate. It's out there. It's a lesson that we all need to learn. This is an idyllic vision of what Israel is about. But we all know we don't live in that world. We all know we live in the world of mistakes and wrong deeds and misdeeds and kvetching and krechsing and all the things that don't let us realize that vision. So how do we deal with that reality? How do we deal with the fact that God promised the Israelites that he would take them from the dark days of Egypt to the promised land and they 
how to really check God out. And they had to send spies, which is the next teaching we're going to look at. And you know, a spy is supposed to look at things, and even if they see problems, what's a good spy? To come back and say, we can't penetrate? It's impossible? Or does a good spy look and find an opportunity how you can overcome the challenges? You don't send a spy to tell you what you already know, that you have difficulties. So if you look at the last verse, and this is an interpretation offered by the Kutzka Rebbe. Again, we studied him a bit in depth earlier. And I'll say it in English, but in Hebrew it's a little bit more powerful. And the last verse of that teaching introducing the spies, where Moses tells them what to look for and to check out the land, he says, you shall strengthen yourself and take from the fruit of the land. The days were the season of the first ripe grapes. First of all, why do you have to strengthen yourself to take a grape? You know? <laughs> Although the ancient grapes were quite a bit bigger than ours. But that notwithstanding, what's the Torah really telling us? Strengthen yourself after you do all the checking out and you see all the challenges and you do your objective account. Ask yourself, are there opportunities in this land? Can I look at the future? Can I look at the fruits of this land? Can I look beyond the present? Take from the fruits of the land. And what kind of fruits? Grapes. Because grapes are different than any other fruit. It has its own blessing, right? Bori Priyagafen. And we know why. Because a grape is not just a fruit. But a grape is pressed and stepped on and stomped. And yet we're going to have, God forbid, those moments. But even in those hard moments, is there an opportunity? Do you become seasoned? Do you become stronger? We spoke earlier of building spiritual muscles to overcome all the challenges that you're faced with. It's when the grapes become ripened. Where there's challenges in Israel, don't get to easy surface, quick fixed answers. The right or the left, forgive me, are all stuck in the narrow Dalit Amod, four cubits of their world. And I'm right and you're wrong. And I think the lesson here being told is, yeah, right now it looks like it's impossible. Can you begin thinking of a vision for the future, yet being reality-based? The beauty about the Torah is it's not just, I mean, I'm, I'm into singing and, and, and we're into dancing, but it's not just about la-la land. It's about being reality-based and connecting to that higher consciousness. To most people, it's a contradiction. To us, it's life. I remember when I was in the Soviet Union with Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, a reporter asked him, Rabbi Shlomo, you're talking about the beauty of being a Jew. I know a different Jewish history. I know pogroms, inquisition, holocaust. I'll stop there. Believe me, he had many more challenges to him. And I remember Shlomo's deep answer to him. He said, you know what? You're right about each of those things. But you know how many weddings happened during the pogroms? How many Simcha Torah happened in Auschwitz? In the darkest moments? We somehow found that transcendence. Somebody once said, after 9-11, the whole world became Jewish. Because now we all realize, my God, any moment, God forbid, it can all fall apart. But you still have to go on and try to find something that's beyond all the things that bring you down. And that's really our holy vision in Israel, is if the present doesn't look good, plant seeds for the future. Okay, right now we can't do it, whatever it is that we have to do. But never give up. 
Never forget we are here to really create a whole new consciousness of ourselves, of what the world can be like. Do you know what's so powerful? One of the commentaries says, Our generation was blessed to go back to the Holy Land. What kind of privilege that is for 2,000 years? And he says this is a halacha from Maimonides. Maimonides rules that if someone commits a crime, commits a sin, how do you know that you've achieved teshuvah? You need to go back, you need to go back to that place, to, those envir- to that environment, to those circumstances, and show that you can overcome that challenge. If you can't, you've not really done teshuvah. You've not fixed. So we said, our return to Israel is a return to the crime scene. Our problems with Israel started when the spies were speaking Lashon Hara, speaking negatively. The temple was destroyed. The last temple that we had in Israel was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam. You've heard this a thousand times. Because of senseless hatred. Let me ask you something. The first temple was destroyed because of largely idol worship and a little bit of murder and a few other things that were not proper. How long did it take it for us to fix the sins of the first temple? 70 years and we were back. It's now 2,000 years. And we're still challenged by that. And my God, in Israel, the challenge is greater than anywhere else. There's a beautiful teaching of the Baal Shem Tov that he, um, Rosh Hashanah, he had what's called in mystic spiritual language, Aliyat Nishama, his soul rose up heavenly. And he was just like in such a transcendent, beyond infinite world that everything was so idyllic and so powerful and his whole body was imbued with the highest utopia you can possibly imagine. He really was in heaven. And he said to himself, but this is, not of, no, this is of no value to me if I can't bring this down to earth. It's a temporary fleeing moment. And he writes in a letter to his brother-in-law, who was living in Hebron then, Mabgesh and Kitavur. He says, and they told me from that highest consciousness that I will not be able to bring that idyllic state down to earth. But they told me to be so careful with every word you speak. Because every word you speak, and especially in the land of Israel, is the name of God. We're created in God's image. So everything every human being represents is in the name of God. So he said to his brother-in-law, be so careful with how you speak. The source of all conflict starts with that anger, with that misplaced emotion, with that surface judgment call. And the challenge for that is the greatest in the Holy Land. It's a challenge that we have internally, and it's a challenge that we have externally. So looking at Moses in the third teaching, who couldn't quite make it into the promised land because his speech was found to be a little bit deficient for him to be on a level to bring us into the Holy Land and for him to be able to inspire an eternal connection to the Holy Land. So yeah, Moses, the great Moses, is in the portion we're looking at in the third teaching, is given by God an opportunity to see the land. And in Parshat Eschanan, the fifth line down, Moses asks, 
that he can, go, he can cross over and see the good land. Esa'aretz hatova. I know all the problems that are in Israel, and my God, we, we, they're highlighted tenfold. But can you find something, a promise, a hope, a vision in the good land? And how is Moses told in the next verse to view the, the holy land, to go up to the mountaintop? Well, if you're up to the mountaintop, you're, you're already seeing the holy land. But God says to him, lift up your eyes. See the holy land from a heavenly perspective. It's so easy to see the holy land with all the down-to-earth challenges and be stuck on them. I'm not saying we should run from them. They're part of life. But they're not all of life. And they're definitely not all of life in the land of Israel. Our mission, our vision in the land of Israel is not the same as our mission and our vision in any other country in the world. And we so easily forget that. And we're still in Israel while we're in exile. We're still looking at Israel as if, you know, it's horse trading, it's politics. And of course it is on some level, but where are the spiritual powers and spiritual forces to inspire a higher consciousness? I'm not saying give up your right, left, centrist positions. You know, you know what the problem with the world is? We're looking for the lowest common denominator to bring us together. And we can't find it. You know why? Because we need to look for the highest common denominator. Only that can bring us together. The lowest never will. We're always going to get lower, and it won't be common. But the highest? Whoa. And even if you get a fleeing moment of it, a peak of it, you can live a lifetime off that energy. So I'm not critical of the politicians. I'm critical of myself and all the good spiritual people why we're not reminding ourselves what our higher mission is, what our higher vision in the land is. The next teaching we're going to look at is from Isaiah. And again, just looking at the last sentence, or the last two sentences, tell you the whole story. God calls the Holy Temple his house of prayer for all of humanity. It's part of our high holiday service, preparatory slichot service. But it's not enough in our consciousness. You know, that little piece of, 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 of territory that we're fighting over. I mean, I had the privilege once. It's like a personal story, but I think it's worthwhile sharing. I was walking with Rip Shlomo down the steps many years ago, um, approaching the Kotel, and the way he walked down the steps, any walk with him, especially in Israel, he's meeting hundreds of people who knew him from 10 and 20 and 40 years ago. So as we're walking, the sun is setting, and you know the Yeshiva HaKotel, the kids dance their way down to the Kotel to uh, do the Friday night service. By the time we got two-thirds of the way down the staircase, they were dancing their way up already, and he, we still hadn't landed. Anyway, I hope there's no strong... Uh, um, excuse me, strong, uh, uh, you know, halachicists here, but um, we got there when it was pitch dark. We dive in Mincha, the time that the Satma Rebbe would, which is when it's like beyond, you know. And anyway, I had just a blessed moment. It was a good introduction, just seeing him connect and, and, and love and embrace humanity as he was walking down the stairs. And then 
I was just standing there for a minute myself, and there were a few Hasidim finishing their final service. And um, as they're finishing their service, I heard church bells. And, you know, I just looked next to me. I was standing by the roped-off area right behind uh, the Kotel. So I was basically in the Kotel confines, but it was just the area that had, had a, a chain running across there. Next to me, I'll just say it as uh, conservatively as I can, was a, let's call her Norwegian blonde, not dressed too religiously. She was in the holy temple. You wouldn't let her into most Orthodox temples. She was in the holy temple standing right next to me. And then just, it was a heavenly moment. I see this chassid going over to the Kotel, and he's caressing and hugging the wall with such softness and such love. I said, where else do you see a chassid emoting so publicly, so lovingly? And next to him is Anzis Yingala, and he put his hand on his kepala, on his little head, and they're both just kissing and hugging the wall. And then God really blessed me. An Israeli soldier with an Uzi machine gun takes position right next to him. And I can hear the machine gun scraping up on the wall. And he puts his holy hands on the kota right next to the chassids. And the same love that I saw in the chassid, I saw in the soldier who's, God forbid, ready to do whatever he has to do. You know? Beiti, beiti, fila yikarei l'chol ha'amim. All the religiosity, all the spirituality, all extremes converge on that spot. It's a holy piece of land. And you, I saw the holy potential in those moments. You know, I've also been unblessed to see Jews throw stones on fellow Jews. Never mind, you know. I always say, forgive me. But um, for those of you who go back in the newspaper accounts, I'm going to date myself again, Antifada 1, before it happened, there were numerous articles throughout the Jewish media about Jews throwing stones on fellow Jews who violated the Shabbat. We throw stones on each other. They throw stones on us. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. My dear friends, this is the history of our people. The Talmud, I forget the year, um, somewhere in the 10th or 11th century, there was a Jewish man who uh, converted to Christianity, and he's tried convincing the Pope that the Talmud is an anti-Christian document. And he had some success. And they burned... 20 odd wagon loads of the Talmud before the printing press. They wiped out the entire Talmud from France. A student of Rabbeinu Yonah, one of the great scholars of that period, went the next day to Hotel de Ville, which is the city hall in Paris, to pick up the ashes of the Holy Talmud. You know what he found in those ashes? The works of the Moran Evuchim, Guide for the Perplexed, that we had just burned on that same spot less than a month earlier. We burn our books, they burn our books. And why was the temple destroyed, the second one? We hate each other, they hate us. You know, there's such a beautiful disagreement among two great 
commentators on the prophets as to what the famous statement that the Jewish community is in its idyllic consciousness most familiar with, or lagoyim, we're a light unto the nations. So one commentator says it means we have to be a light to the nations of the world. Another commentator says it means they have to be a light. Each tribe is called a goy also. That we have to be a light unto ourselves. And we're taught that a disagreement of reality can't be a disagreement. How, I mean, which one is it? It's got to be one or the other. But the answer is it's both. If we're a light unto ourselves, we'll be a light unto the nations of the world. And if we're a little bit, God forbid, dark to each other, then we'll be very gloomy and chas v'shalom. And I'm not saying that that justifies their misbehavior. But I'm looking inward and saying, what can we do? What consciousness can we create that can maybe change the energy? And I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking concessions or not concessions. I'm talking about bringing us together for some transcendent positive consciousness in the land of Israel. What a miracle. For 2,000 years we're praying to go to this holy land. Do you know, so beautiful, but the high British officer once told Ruff Cook, come on, give up on it already. You guys have been out of that country for nearly two millennium. You're not going to make it back there. It's not yours. You've not been there for 1,800 years. Those are the facts. Other people have been there. He was right, you know. By rational understanding, I could hear him clearly. Ruff Cook answered him, we haven't ruled there for the last 1,800 years. But for the last 1,800 years, that spot has ruled us three times a day in our prayers and our visions. We never left it in our souls. And you know, according to Jewish law, if you lose an object and you don't give up on not being able to retain that object, then you have status rights to it there's no such thing as, what's the term I'm looking for when a statute of limitations? There's no statute of limitations. If you can prove that you never stopped looking, your soul, your body was always connected to it, then you will forever have rights to it. Miraculous that we're back there. It's saddening that we're just viewing it as a political recovery, as a great nationalistic achievement. And it is those things, and we can be proud of that. And we can disagree, reform, orthodox, conservative, Hasidim, Misnagdim, you name it, right? Let's have all the disagreements in the world we want. How about equal time to establishing some language of commonality? That's all we're asking for. If we would establish some language of commonality, some experiences that we could all share with each other, the ripple effect, the vibrations of that, which changed the whole political, sociological, you name it, landscape. We're just stuck on our tunnel vision. I'm right and you're wrong, right and left. And that's not going to solve this problem. It could solve Vietnam. It could solve the Soviet Union. But there's a much higher, much more spiritual solution that's being begged of us to, to show sensitivity to. And I'm not the chief rabbi of Israel. I don't know what the answer is. But I know that what we're doing right now is not the answer. That's proven. That's factual. And I know that if we plant a higher vision 
in reality, not just as a theoretical conversation, but there's got to be something that we can do together as a people that's positive that we can all agree on. And like I said, don't shoot for the lowest common denominator. But we've returned to Israel from the most hard-wrenching, broken exile that any group of human beings have experienced. Nearly 2,000 years of endless oppression, endless pain. So I'm not blaming us. But our return to Israel is a little bit of what Rav Kook called the beginning of redemption. So we need a paradigm shift. We need a change in our consciousness. We need to look at this new opportunity, not in political or sociological terms, in practical spiritual terms. What kind of a new spirituality, ancient spirituality, traditional spirituality, fresh spirituality, it's all the same, my dear friends, can we find in the Holy Land that can begin to create a little bit of a fix of our brokenness. Yeah, you're going to find terrible ills and terrible mistakes and misdeeds in Israel. My God, you look, there's no end. You know, a man once came to Rav Cook, you know, the first chief rabbi of Israel, predated the modern state of Israel. A man came to Rav Cook once, and he said, Rabbi, this is such an irreligious country. He said, the way people dress and every, it's just... Ultra-Orthodox man, this is such a turnoff. For this, we needed to come back to Israel? Rav Kook, who was always sharp and quick with answers, had no answer. A few minutes later, he asked him, where do you come from? I think he told me Denver. He said, yeah, yeah, I do come from Denver. He says, you know, Denver must be one of the sickest places in the world. He says, why Rav Kook? That's not at all. He says, well, I hear people with all kinds of breathing diseases and, 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 and issues of that nature are, are all over Denver. He says, no, Ruff Cook, you don't understand. The sickest people come to Denver because the air is so clean and so healing that it attracts them only to heal them. Ruff Cook says, you answered your own critique. <laughs> yeah, the sickest people come to Israel. Hashem. You know, they have a place where to go to now. You know, God has an address. You know, Shalom used to say. But what an opportunity. Let's create a healing energy in the country. So I'm telling you, I'm critiquing myself and my profession, whatever that means. But I really want to have a little holy chutzpah and maybe critique you a little bit too and critique ourselves. Because it's not going to come it's not going to come from the top. It's obvious. Because people on the top are busy with their agendas and their work. It's going to come the same way the Soviet Union fell. It's going to come from an uprising from the bottom up, from a miraculous recovery by people saying, we're sick of this. We want something different. And you know, the, the next teaching that I have here is from the High Holiday Service the repetition, the Musaf service. It's a beautiful prayer about the whole world returning to Israel, similar to the one that I used from Isaiah, but it adds one other component. It says the people from faraway islands, 
meaning those that are separated, those that are secluded, that are not part of the tradition. And it lists various categories of people that will return. But I think the most beautiful one at the end is the Yishmu Rechokim V'yavo'u. And those that are far away, those that are completely turned off, they will hear and they will come. And then it ends with the words, V'yitnu Lecha Keter Melucha. You know who's going to give God the crown of his kingdom? Not the biggest Rebbe, not the biggest Tzaddik, but the biggest, most distant person in the world. And I think what we're looking at really is that who really began the return to Israel in our time period? It was not the biggest tzaddikim, right? It was socialists, anarchists, you know? And I think that energy is out there. It's terribly misguided in some cases, but there's a sincerity, there's a, a radical spirit of wanting to create something different in Israel. And I think we need to listen to the biggest tzaddikim. And as Rav Shmuley said, a lot of young people are, are pained in their own way. And while I can't say I agree with a lot of their pain, there's still something listening to pain. The yishmu, hearing it, hearing those that are far away. And you know, their idyllic vision, be it naive, be it, be it dangerous, it's still something that in some way we all need to incorporate into our lives. Maybe not the way they're suggesting it. And I would say definitely not the way they're suggesting it. Okay, two points for the right. Um, but I'll, I'm going to give two points to the left too. Okay. But we need to hear. We need to listen. And they need to hear us too a little bit. It's a two-way hearing process. Not talking process, hearing process. You know, it's so beautiful. The... Uh, the last quote I want to look at with you comes from the Psalms and it's from the Hallel prayer. And it's just a one-liner, but this, this prayer speaks about all kinds of praise and gladdening words that connect us to higher consciousness. And then it says, on the third line, oh, yeah, the stone the builders despised has become the cornerstone. There's such a beautiful medrash that explains what that stone is. So when the builders of the Holy Temple wanted to build the Bet HaMikdash, they gathered all the beautiful stones of Jerusalem. You've seen it, precious stones, to the mountaintop. And they wanted to take those stones and create the foundation, excuse me, and the walls of the Bet HaMikdash. But how did they know which stone to put where? So the Midrash says there was a shamir, a worm, that would polish every stone and it would run up and down the stones and give them a certain shape. And then the builders would take that stone and place it and everything was fitting like a perfect puzzle. Then there was this one stone that was polished and the builders tried placing it and it didn't fit anywhere. At a certain point, they just gave up on it. They cast it away. They called it the stone that we threw away. You know, it just didn't fit. They, got, they despised it, you know. And then they kept on getting new stones from the Shamir and placed them all up upon the wall. And then they were finally coming to the top of the Holy of Holies, the highest point of the Bet HaMikdash. 
Then there was one little hole left, the last stone the Shamir hands them. They put it in, and it's in Yiddish, the Geitnish. It doesn't fit. Can't put it in. Another stone, another stone. Suddenly, the builders remembered that castaway stone. They looked for it all over the streets of Jerusalem. One lucky builder found it, brought it back. It fit like a perfect puzzle in the final piece. Se'evan masu habonim. There was one stone the builders despised. Haita l'rosh pina. That became the crown of the glory. The Medrash says, you know who that despised stone is? It's David. King David was despised by his own family. He was not the one who was going to be the Messiah. Try every other son when Samuel came for anointing. And the Medrash says, you know who that stone is? It's the children of Israel. We have been, we are, and for some time we may have to still be despised by the whole world. But hide till the Rosh Pina. And if you ask, why, why should that be so? May et Hashem haitazot. This is from God. He neflat It's a great wonder in our eyes. Doesn't make any sense. But it's about bridging extremes. It's about realizing that from where you think it's not going to come is where it's going to come from. It's about Israel being and the temple and, and the holiness and the land being a whole other dynamic, a whole other perspective than the usual political textbook approaches. And you know, there were many instances in our tradition, my friends, where that higher vision was introduced. It was temporary, but we didn't stick with it. I mentioned earlier that uh, the Baal Shem Tov wrote a letter to his brother-in-law who's living in Hebron about 250 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, his brother-in-law wrote, once wrote a letter to him saying that um, Simcha Torah, he said, I coming from exile wanted to keep a second day because I was not yet set on living in Israel. And so I asked some people to join me after, in Israel they danced the first day, Shemini Yatzeret, and not the second day of, of the two-day holiday. So I started dancing, and a few Jewish people came and, and joined me. And you know, before long, Jews were hearing singing and dancing in the small little Jewish ghetto in Chavron. Before long, the entire Jewish community, because every other night they would have their own services, each in their own place. But this night, there was only one service, because for them the holiday was over. So all the Jews of Chavron were singing and dancing and clapping together. He says, that noise got so powerful and so captivating that soon some of our Islamic cousins showed up in their most colorful clothes. He describes sheikhs dancing with Hasidim in a circle in Hebron. He says it was a moment like Mashiach had come. So I don't know about dialogue. I think we need it. But it can't only be the traditional dialogue of the back and forth of a conversation. And maybe song is the method. Maybe music is the tool that can bring kindred spirits together. Shlomo used to say, if you and I talk at the same time, neither of us could hear each other. If you and I sing together, we give each other harmony. And that's what the world needs now. Speaking of Rabbi Shlomo, I'll tell you what he said when 
Sadat decided to go to uh, Israel. He happened to be at the airport, which is, was his home most of the time, flying all over the world. And um, he was quite close to Menachem Begin, and he met one of Begin's top aides at the airport. And he went over to him and says, do me a favor, if you can just tell Menachem Begin in my name that before Sadat comes, he should set up a different process than the negotiating process. He should actually arrange that we should meet him at the airport and fill the streets from the airport in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem with the entire country, let all our children have a day off, and let's just welcome him with song and dance, and let's sing and dance our way with him to the Kotel, and let's all pray together and sing with him at the Kotel for a few minutes. Sounds brilliantly naive, but listen. And he said, and maybe we could ask him if a few of our chevra can go back to um, Egypt and um, we can sing and dance in Pitom and Ramses with some of their chevra and, and we could have a little bit of dancing there too. Anyway, as you could imagine, this aide did not repeat that ridiculous thought to Shlomo, to, to Begin. A few months later, Shlomo meets Menachem Begin. And he says, perchance, did my far-right idea get shared with you? He says, what far-right idea? Menachem Begin, right-wing prime minister, says to Shlomo Karabach, what a chaval! I am so sorry that was not shared. What a powerful experience it would have been to start with some common experience that can bind us, that can be transcendent. These weren't the exact words he used, but that was the spirit he used. And I think we can't leave this process up to politicians alone. We can't leave this process up to negotiators, to rabbis. This has got to be a process from the bottom up. It's got to be a process, as in that previous teaching that we just cited, Everyone is actually saying, enough of this. Let's try something different. And by the way, this something different all has happened throughout our history. Josephus, never mind the rabbis. Josephus writes that in the days of the ancient temple, there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world watching the high priest perform the service on the holidays on Yom Kippur. This novel idea is ancient. And that's the only way we can hold it together. This is the way it was held together in antiquity. We had our own individuality as Jews being rooted in our tradition in the deepest way and at the same time a tremendous universal openness. If I can take it one step further. In our tradition we believe we have two great mountains Mount Moriah and Mount Sinai. What's Mount Sinai? You all know Mount Sinai is. God reveals himself to us. Let me tell you what Mount Moriah is. Mount Moriah is where we reveal ourselves to God. We bring their offerings there to God. Isaac, the Akedah, was at Mount Moriah. And to this day, we're challenged in Mount Moriah. So we're talking not about a divine revelation, 
We're talking about a humanistic transcendence that comes from the bottom up, not from the top on down. Do you know, in Kabbalah there's a concept, itaruta dil ela, itaruta dil tata. All the miracles happen from a heavenly stirring. But before there's a heavenly stirring, before there's a heavenly stirring, there has to be an earthly stirring. Before the crossing of the Red Sea, one man had to jump in first. Before the miracle of, of Hanukkah, we had to take up arms and do things. Esther had to be brilliant before the miracle of Purim. Except for the miracle of going out of Egypt, which was all heavenly, all miracles that followed that came from the bottom up. And I think the miracle of redemption is waiting for us to wake up a consciousness within us to say, how can we think transcendently? How can we think outside of the box? Again, not on political issues. Start with internally as a people and try to move externally as humanity. And you know, we tune into the brokenness, but we don't realize what's really broken in our life. It's not the surface stuff. It's not who's fighting with who. It's not who's right and who's wrong. Something much greater is broken in life. According to Jewish halacha, and Rav Cook said this in a very poetic way, so I'll just share his, his approach. He said there's one country in the world that's called the Holy Land, and that's Israel. And in that Holy Land, there's one city. It's called the Holy City. Yerushalayim. And in that city, there's one house that's called the Bet HaMikdash, the Holy House. And in that house, there is one chamber called the Holy of Holies. And into that chamber may only enter the holiest man of our tradition on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the high priest. He said, and if something breaks in that chamber. How's it repaired? How's it fixed? A common workman in his everyday clothes with his material and tools walks right in, starts banging and zetzing and chopping and fixing away like any other place. My dear friend, it's not the little stuff that's broken. It's our holy of holiness that's broken. And it's not going to be fixed by the high priest. It's going to be fixed by you and me. We each need to, in our own way, start saying, we've had enough, and we want something that's going to be a real fix. Do you know, Rip Shlomo used to quote this, this medrash called Medrash Yerushalayim. I'm a little bit hoarse and off, but let me try to sing it, and that's good. So Rabbi Shlomo would say, before God created the world, he first created the Holy Land. And the Lord stood in the Holy Land, and he created the world. Before God created the world, he first created the Holy City. And he stood in the Beth HaMikdash, in the Holy of Holies, in Yerushalayim, in Eretz Yisrael, and he created the world. And then he concluded, the Midrash says, Before God created the world, 
He first created little children, and the Almighty stood and wrapped in a talus, surrounded by little children in the Holy of Holies, in the Beit HaMikdash, in Yerushalayim, in the land of Israel. And the Lord said, Let there be light. And behold, there was light. My dear friends, we're doing this for our children. We need the sincerity, the purity of our children enwrapped as a talit in us. It's our future. It's the future of humanity. This is not just another political battle. This is cosmic. This is a real tikkun. It's easy to go around and say, I'm for tikkun olam. God bless you all for doing it, whoever does it. But this is a deeper tikkun olam than just a political agenda. And I bless every, every tikkun right, left. It's all good. But this is a transcendent tikkun. And this can't be done with divisiveness. can't be done with anger. It's got to be done with love. It's got to be done with understanding. And, and I have a right to speak candidly about my pain, as does the person that disagrees with me. So this is not something for a press release. This is not a grand statement that anybody could make. But this is about creating little discussion groups, little, little exchanges. And many beautiful people are doing it. But I think it needs to not just be done on a pragmatic, secular level. It needs to be done on the highest spiritual level. I want to just share with you, if I may, for one minute. And I, I want you to... Um, ask questions, but maybe at the end, if it's okay with you, we, as Rav Shlomo used to say, you have to get up anyway eventually to leave or to eat or whatever. Um, so maybe we can get up and form a strong circle and pray and sing and dance for two minutes to start creating an energy within our souls of what we're really about. But I want to try to finish this timely. So I, I, I don't even, I'm beyond time. Here we go, it's 8.10, I did pretty good. I did it in an hour, the way I was supposed to. So let me hear a few questions, if you have any. And if we, we solved everything today, then we can get right to the dancing. But I, but I want to encourage anyone and everyone to speak in any way they want to. I'm just putting out, I'm teasing a, an issue that's complex and trying to say the traditional approach hasn't worked. Let's go for something much higher than it. But let me hear your thoughts, please. No, you didn't love to talk. Let's hear. So based on what um, Rob Shmuley said at the beginning, mm -hmm. was that after the Holocaust, Israel was the unifier, and now it's a divider. And, um, you know, and it's, it seems to be political. I mean, there, there seems to be, you know, information. People say, experts are saying that Republicans tend to be more pro-Israel, right. and Democrats are starting to be more against Israel. Right. And that's not good for Israel at that's all. That's right, that's right. So what would the highest common denominator be to fix that? Right, right. I think you have to look and see the critique is coming from a very high place. I would argue, are we 501c4? Can I, am I limited or can I speak freely? Okay, I'm cool. I can get away with that. I can offend everybody. Okay. Okay. So I think there's... I, okay. So I'm, I'm cool. I can go for it. I, okay. I think there is beautiful, idealistic naivete. And I think that we need to hear that. And I think it's all love-based. I think it's all positive thinking-based. And I think we need to find the holy spark in it and, and connect in some way that allows us all to share a positive 
experience that won't be exactly their political agenda and won't be exactly our opposition, but there has to be something. We are a people, and if we can't find something that we can do together as a people, do you know, in the Orthodox world, rabbis, of course, have a bit more control than they do in the non-Orthodox denominations, and, and years ago, they started the idea of every Jew learning a page of the Talmud a day, and it caught on like wildfire, and it was, it was a radical innovation. And I think that if enough of us would get together and start thinking, I don't have the answer, but I know the answer exists. I know it's much simpler than you think it is. It's something positive, something that we can all support, and something that creates a frame of reference that we are a people. I don't think we can go fix the world yet. First, we've got to fix ourselves. But I think the ripple effect of that is what I'm saying about. So Rav Shmuley is right. And, and your point is, is saddening. I'm a, I'll make a confession. I told Rav Shmuley, I might as well tell you all, I'm a lifelong Democrat who's challenged by my politics, you know, by my party. And I, I love those concepts. I still believe in them. But I, I, I don't hear responses to questions that I'm posing. But I'm not getting into politics right now. I said I was not going to do it. And I just did it. So I have to ready bang for Yom Kippur. But, um, but what I'm trying to say is that we have to a little bit forget about that for five minutes. Because that's not going to be the approach that's going to take us to this consciousness. We have to hear each other and see what simple, maybe not so simple, but, but what can we all do if we, my God, it would be very tragic if we can't find anything that we can do together. It would show that we really aren't a people. It would show that we're not the Jews. I have faith we can find it. Any follow-up before I hear the second question? I would say that we have to realize and understand that we can love and support Israel without saying that we totally love and support the current government. And that's a misconception. Someone who doesn't agree with the current government is all of a sudden anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, something like that. Mm -hmm. We have to understand our love for Israel mm -hmm. goes beyond mm -hmm. just, you know, mm -hmm. what, what the current government sure. is doing. I respect what you're saying, but I'm speaking slightly different words. And I'm saying that conversation, which I hear and I respect it, that conversation is still in the old model. And I'm saying in the spiritual model, we have to, we can have that conversation, we should have that conversation. But it can't stop there. There's got to be something. There's got to be something positive, something that bridges right and left, something that's sacred, that's, that's truly within our tradition. Helping, I don't, you can, we'll, we'll think of it. That's not the issue. We'll, we'll disagree until we find something that we can agree upon. But something that we do together to change the energy. There is nothing that bonds us and binds us as a people anymore. As you said so beautifully, it used to be Israel. It used to be the Soviet Union. It used to be Soviet Jewry. Thank God we don't have that issue anymore. So does that mean we need a new problem? You know, I, I, um, I, I remember reading um, that it was in the height of the Cold War when, again, I'm dating myself, when things were terrible. And um, this, this uh, um, op-ed article in the New York Times, this columnist argued that there is an um, asteroid that's racing towards planet Earth. The only problem is it's about 200 years away. He said, imagine if it were two months away or two years away. Imagine what it would do to the world. Imagine if we had to unify to fight a common enemy, so to speak. You know? So 
I'm not even talking about that. You know, there's two levels of unity, the Sochet Shavu Rebbe says. When the Egyptians chased the Jews, it says that the, it mentions the Egyptians in the singular, Vayasa Mitzrayim. They were fighting an enemy and they got together and Rashi says they were like one soul and one heart. You know the other time it says those same phrases, Sochet Shavu Rebbe says, is when Israel rested at Mount Sinai. They were ki'ish echad b'leiv echad. The words in Hebrew are vayachan Yisrael, in the singular. All of Israel rested as one. They weren't fighting any enemy. They were finding a transcendent consciousness. So I hope we don't have to wait for the asteroid. I hope we don't have to wait for a problem to unify us. And that's going to be the wrong consciousness. I mean, what I'm saying may sound naive, but it's really very practical. It's very simple. It's just us getting together and saying, this old approach has just not worked. Let's go back to the depth of our tradition. Let's go back to our pre-creation visions. Let's go back to our post-modern visions, when we believe we all will be one. And we're in the in-between. I'm sorry, somebody else raised a hand? Oh, OK. So let's raise our hands in song and dance for a minute, if you will. And um, I, I want to sing. One prayer with you. I don't know if you're, if you're okay to be a little bit new agey and holding hands, and if you're not, we'll, we'll, Ayla will hold my hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, do as you're comfortable. I don't, I don't want to put anybody out, but my hands are extended. <laughs> peace in the holy city, peace in the holy land, Peace in Yerushalayim, let there be peace. Peace in every city, peace in every land. Peace among all religions, let there be peace. Just for all of your children, just for all of my children. Just for all of God's children, let there be peace. Yehi shalom bechelef shalva be'yar menotayich. Let there be peace in your palaces and your in your prince headquarters. Yehi shalom be. Prophet said, there'll come a day. There'll be a mighty blowing that'll wake up all of humanity. You know the sound that'll be heard, the call the mamadaka, the still sound, the silent sound will be heard. And they will flock to the mountaintop from all the corners of the world. They will come and they will sing and they will dance. 
And this is what they're going to say. Yerushalayim, 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 Yerushalayim. One last thought, if I may. We're never ending. We're never ending. Never. But never, God forbid. Never stop. Never give up. Rabbi Shlomo said, and I thank Rabbi for teaching me this lesson. She has it brilliantly on video. He said, how do we know the Holy Land is ours? How do we know it's ours? He said it here in this holy city, right? Oh, my God. What a schut. What a privilege. What a privilege. God bless you, Rabbi Bela. He said, until 1967, the old city, the Bet HaMikdash, was closed off to much of the world, definitely to Jews and definitely to many other nationalities. But after 1967, something wild happened. People from Korea, from Japan, you name it, from all the four corners of the world started coming. He said, I can't go, although Ayla would let me do it, <laughs> but I can't go to Ayla's house and invite you all to come for a party, although she's doing what, <laughs> actually, she would let me do it. I chose, I chose the right example. But usually Ayla, the owner of a house, will invite whoever they think is appropriate for them to come. He said, we, previously the Holy Land was not open to the world because whoever owned it was insecure, uncomfortable. But the moment we took possession of it, we let the whole world come and pray. And my dear friends, this is ancient. Josephus, I just told you, says the same thing 2,000 years ago. Never mind the rabbis saying it. They're a good enough source for me too. But Josephus says that hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over would come to watch the holy service. We weren't afraid. So may God bless us to keep Israel a holy, open land to the whole world. And may God bless us that the whole world opens up a little bit to us 
and we to them. And I better stop before I say something inappropriate. <laughs> so I love you all, and God bless you. And let's just clap for Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.